We are taking you behind the scenes of the National Institute for Data Science and Artificial Intelligence. With unprecedented access to the scientists pushing boundaries and shaping our future, this show will take you to the cutting edge and beyond. And whether you're an expert yourself or just science curious, this is the show for you. Welcome to the Turing Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Turing Podcast. I'm your host for today, Ed Cowstry, and I'm joined by Dr. Adrian Weller and Kate Platanova. Adrian is a Programme Director and Turing Fellow, leading work on safe and ethical AI at the Alan Turing Institute, and a Director of Research and Machine Learning at Cambridge, and also a Programme Director for Trust and Society at the Leverhulme Centre for the Future of Intelligence. Kate is a Chief Data and Analytics Officer at HSBC, looking after the entire data landscape at HSBC, including analytics and AI. Adrian and Kate, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. Glad to be here. Yeah, very happy to be here as well. So I'm just going to start with um, some introductions from both of you. So I think I'll go to Adrian first. Um, Adrian, tell us a bit about your background, um, how you came to be in your line of work, and um, yeah, how did you end up at the Alan Turing Institute? Uh, I have a slightly unusual background, which um, ties me actually uh, nicely to, to Kate in some ways. Um, though I started as a, uh, doing, doing undergrad in, in maths, uh, but after that, I went straight into the world of finance, uh, and I worked uh, in investment banks and hedge funds, mostly in New York, a little bit in Chicago and London. Um, did that for uh, for about 15 years, had a really great time, lots of great people, um, but um, decided that uh, I'd had um, enough of that at, at a certain point and um, left finance. Um, I had a, a long non-compete period to, to think about what, what to do. I got married, we went traveling, we had a great time. And um, I'd always been interested in potentially coming back to academia, so I thought I'd give it a go. And so I, I as the Americans say, went back to school uh, as a mature student. And at first I wasn't sure if that would be really, really difficult or not so bad. And uh, we also had little kids at the time, so it was a slightly unusual setup. Um, but I, I really enjoyed it. So um, I did a PhD in machine learning at Columbia in New York, really liked that, and was delighted then to be able to get the chance come back to the UK and get a position at Cambridge in the machine learning group with uh, with great colleagues there. Um, so I have um, I've somewhat specialised in in an area which is which is still pretty broad, an area that I uh, that I would call perhaps trustworthy machine learning or trustworthy AI. Uh, sometimes goes under different different names like um, safe and ethical AI or responsible AI, but um, this broadly speaking means how can we try to help ensure that uh, the systems which we design, develop and deploy are going to treat individuals and society well, not, not take advantage of people. So it covers topics like transparency and explainability, fairness, robustness, privacy, um, and a bunch of other areas. Um, what I mostly do is focus on trying to build the technical fundamentals to enable those, those kinds of properties. But I really recognize um, that it, it's key if we're going to do that properly to connect well with, with practitioners, users, and affected stakeholders so that we understand what the real world concerns are. Uh, and then also, I, uh, I try to help a bit to connect to policymakers and regulators so that they're going to, you know, whatever it is that we decide together as a society is what we want these algorithms to be able to do, um, it's possible to monitor and enforce that. Um, and one of the, the projects which we're involved with at Turing 
uh, together with HSBC is looking exactly at these sorts of areas in the area of finance. And so it's wonderful to be able to, to talk about this with, with Kate today. Brilliant. Yeah, thanks for that, Adrian. Um, yeah, Kate, perhaps you could tell us a bit about um, your background, how you came to be doing what you're doing today, and yeah, but a bit about your role. Uh, thank you, Ed. So, so my path was uh, was a bit windy as well, um, I guess, to, to my current um, role in what I do now. So I started... Um, First of all, I'm from Russia. I've uh, I went to, un- to to school in the U.S. as an exchange student, and um, I, I kind of had no designs to uh, to stay there, but ended up uh, following the peer group, taking some standardized tests, and finding myself uh, a part of an American university and, and getting my undergrad uh, many many moons ago. So uh, my first degree is actually in marketing. So I, I had a career change, um, which was. Um, you know, sort of um, driven by my curiosity uh, around computer science and 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 how um, software is actually being designed and developed. And then I went back to university, uh, got a degree in computer science um, at that point in time, and uh, started working for financial services um, industry. So my first job was uh, at J.P. Morgan in the U.S. Um, and then I, I've been to. Uh, a few other banks um, since. And my roles have always been very data flavored, right? I was a software engineer. Uh, I um, sort of done all the, the different jobs from installing a database and, and buying a server and configuring it to uh, uh, then writing lots and lots of SQL code by hand, doing a lot of um, extra transform and load um, ETL development uh, along the ways, and also taking users' requirement probably uh, working with the likes of um, Adrian to understand what do business people need to see? Um, how um, are they going to be data-led in their decision-making? And then how do we turn it into technical infrastructure and visualization and insights uh, from the data available to them? So that's sort of been my path. I then uh, kind of progressed from software engineering to uh, architecture. So I was a data architect uh, in financial services uh, and I joined HSBC five years ago as chief data architect and then uh, ended up in my current seat. So, so it's a bit uh, interesting for me to be uh, the business of, of data and analytics rather than uh, the tech uh, person. But uh, I work very, very closely with uh, with the CIO community, with our technology department to uh, design and build the overall ecosystem that allows uh, data in HSBC uh, to flow freely, to be clean, to be safe to use. And what Adrian's saying is, is very key to, uh, to, to my ethos and, and where I want to take this space as well. Uh, banking is a business of trust, right? You wouldn't put your money with somebody who you inherently do not trust. Uh, so we have a lot of fiduciary responsibility to our customers, to the regulators, to um, the communities that we serve. And as we introduce more and more straight through processing, more and more algorithms, more and more artificial intelligence into how decisions are made um, in the bank, it has to be explainable, it has to be trustworthy, um, and it has to work off uh, very well understood data sets so we can uh, correct for any uh, bias and, and make sure we understand uh, how the algorithm came by the outcome that it produced. And that's uh, th- that's where I've been 
uh, working on in this space. Uh, outside of HSBC, I've been very privileged to uh, to be a part of a few boards. Uh, Tech Moms is uh, is one of the highlights um, of of my board portfolio life. Uh, working with Dr. Sue Black and uh, empowering. Uh, moms that might not have had um, a chance to interact with technology to uh, to do so. So uh, it's been really great. Nice, nice. Thanks, Kate. Thanks for that. Uh, bye. Um, yeah. So, so I have a I have a question now. We 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 touched on briefly there. Um, you know how uh, AI is going to be used or is being used in financial services. But before we get to that part, um, I'm interested to know, like, what kind of data. Uh, are we typically thinking about in financial services um and yeah what yeah what is the kind of data that's useful uh, for for hsbc for example well let, let me kick off with with um some fun stats um right, right now we have over 300 petabytes of data across the firm um i'm old enough to remember when the 30 terabyte data warehouse was a big deal and you bragged about working on something that large um but 300 petabytes is is where we're at it is growing what is uh can I ask what uh, what is a petabyte is it was it I'm thinking like is it 10 to the 15 or 18 or something I, I don't know well l- let me give you a, a more uh, sort of an image to to think about because uh, exactly the the, the the petabyte is is hard to imagine but if we convert um, all the data into text it would be more text than all the books and all the great libraries of the world combined that's how much. Um, data we've got um, kind of going through our plant and our systems right now. And what it represents is, is, is a mix. There is a, a, some structured data, um, you know, your, your usual suspects, the customer account information, my name, my passport details, my mortgage, so on and so forth. Um, a lot of unstructured data from um, information about our customers, their financial transactions, um, the contract, the conversations with our customers when you call the call center. Um, and increasingly, we're also having to understand more about the um, impacts our business and our customers' business um, are having on the world. So we have some very exciting new data sets that we have to consider, um, for example, data on uh, emissions or environmental activities, deforestation, uh, you know, all part of our sustainability uh, agenda. And those are new data sets to financial services and there's a lot of unstructured data that, that we haven't considered um, yet. And what we are um, doing with all that data is, is obviously using tools like machine learning, like uh, visualization to understand it, to find patterns that are not visible to a uh, human eye um, and try to make some predictions based on that data. So um, because of the scale and the breadth of, of what I just described, um, humans are not well equipped to uh, do so unaided, and you do need algorithms um, to help mm. them out. What What are some like examples of the kinds of um, decision making that those kind of methods can help with? Um, I mean, you mentioned that it's um, it's just an enormous amount of, in many cases, unstructured data. Um, but yeah, what 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 are the kind of like insights that are adding value to like? 
um, yeah, I guess in in the in the case of HSBC, it will be your customers. You know, how how are you able to to help them better by using those kinds of methods on that data? So a couple of examples that that I could think about it is is back to that sort of trying to figure out um, uh, and predict a certain course of events to to a degree. Obviously, we can't predict anything perfectly, but um, one example that we have is around supply chain resilience. So um, HSBC. Um, is the world leader in in trade finance. Um, that's our heritage. That's how we're founded to uh, to, to finance trade activity um, at the time in Hong Kong, and that's been um, our flagship set of products uh, since. So what we do is we provide loans to finance the import of goods and materials, um, and then in turn, you know, those goods and materials might be turned into something else that gets sold on. So. Um, for example, um, it's estimated that about 90% of container ships uh, heading from Asia um, contain goods that have been in part financed by HSBC. So, so we have a very large footprint um, that is part of the overall global supply chain. It's a very complicated network. Um, and we felt that during COVID, you know, when supply chains are disrupted or during um, some recent geopolitical events, Everyone can feel it on the uh, in the shops and um, not being able to get certain goods or certain services. So what we've been doing is we've been com- combining the data from our customers and in part from their suppliers as well uh, to actually model very complex flows of trade and try to identify risks involved in those supply chains. Um, and then, you know, if you're proactive about managing those risks and identifying them to customer to, to see which links of the chain uh, might need strengthening, that's that's a pretty powerful uh, powerful way to um, analyze that. We use graph technology to visualize those networks and flows um, and then try to identify some problematic dependencies and, and give our customers heads up. So this will this will kind of be like uh, graphs of sort of how supply chains themselves work. So you can you can see any sort of bottlenecks that might be occurring. This kind of thing. Uh, yes, and also uh, the, the handovers from one link of the supply chain to another, and you know when there's financing that needs to happen in order to unblock something. Um, so there's multiple variables that you can look at, but it's that building that that network that you can then do analysis on that's quite interesting. Um, and helps make more informed decisions uh, across different parts of that supply web, if you will, not not just um, individual chains. And then the other example I can think about that, that benefits everyone is um, obviously we have a very large technology estate, uh, like any large digitally enabled organization, and we make tens of thousands of system changes every day. Um, one of the the algorithms that we deployed, one of the models, uh, is an AI model that um, has a look a- across um, all the different changes that are about to apply to, to our production environment and tries to predict um, if a change is going to result in failure and if there will be impact to customers and any disruption. Um, it's in its infancy, so we're, we're developing it still and, and training the model, but um, some of the early result, results have been very promising. So we're able to identify and isolate um, and stop the changes that might have a disruptive impact uh, from going into production. And then, you know, rework it and, and revisit it. 
so um, that's kind of what we're doing awesome uh, I, yeah I guess um, it, it's difficult to tell when you're especially when you're not an expert if you're like a imagine you're just a listener of the podcast right now and you're thinking well I mean it's, it sounds amazing that the like researchers and companies have these you know clever you know AI systems in quotation marks that they're somehow able to get these insights in from data that you wouldn't be able to get with conventional methods I don't know if um, I don't know if like either perhaps perhaps Adrian you want to come on in on this like what are the sort of advances in AI that have happened in like recent times that have come out of research that companies and indeed scientists are able to draw upon to make decisions they wouldn't have been able to make previously that's a great question Ed but I wonder if we can maybe work towards it if it's okay yeah go ahead um by me asking Kate a question or two because I'm really (laughs) is that all right of course yes Um, so I'm really interested in in what you're saying about um, resiliency of trade infrastructure and 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 those sorts of topics which of course have been such an important issue through the COVID pandemic and also looking forward Um, so I'd love to hear the sorts of things you're able to learn or or other good examples of um, situations you could identify of potential risks maybe to you know of course to help your customers but perhaps also to help uh, more broadly and you know, help governments think with their planning well and and uh, we've definitely learned quite a lot during the pandemic and i think one of the things we have learned is um that there's certain networks and ecosystems that are very difficult for um human mind to to not only comprehend but to analyze um, so, so I can see a shift in that literacy that, um, y- you know, in some cases, artificial intelligence and um, models and uh, powered by machine learning are much better. And, and, you know, folks are starting to trust them more to, to make the right decisions. Um, some of the things I think we also learned is, is definitely um, around the fragility of, of um, our, um, our world, our health, um, not to be super sort of molden here, but we we all saw how fast um, a virus can uh, bring the world to a standstill. And only through advances in in science and in sharing of data, understanding the data as um, it emerges and then reacting to it and drawing an insight, we're able to to develop vaccines and and to start um, really combating the situation. From... um, our side from financial services side, I think what we've seen is great disruption in the markets that that resulted where uh, previous methods of computation, previous models are not necessarily holding up in such volatile environments. So we have to uh, think of our um, risk modeling in in quite different way um, and apply different techniques in order to to cope with um, what's happening in the markets and, and take into account many more variables than uh, we maybe historically were looking at. Um, and I'll come back to our um, net zero ambition and, and the ESG agenda, if you will. That's um, another part of, um, of our strategy that I feel got expedited by the pandemic, right? People um, started taking um, not only great interest in how we impact the world as a large company and what is our footprint, what's our supply chain, and how do we get that to net zero. Um, But across our customers uh, financed uh, emission space, 
and how we can calculate and help um, our customers transition. How can we understand where to place investment and what technologies to invest in um, in order to facilitate this transition? Um, and it, it felt like it sort of got a new um, injection of energy into that space. And, and one of the things, um, Adrian, that, that we haven't talked about is, uh, at length is, is the, these new data sets, right? So we have new techniques. Um, the tools got better over the past 20-some years that I've been in this space. The technology got faster. We have cloud. We have many other uh, techniques that we didn't have before. Um, and we can compute at a much greater speed uh, on much, um, much faster data sets. However, the data sets became more diverse as well. At HSBC, uh, protecting the data that's entrusted to us by our customers is the first pillar of our overall data strategy. Um, we take it very, very seriously. As I said earlier, I'll say it again, uh, banking is the business of trust. And we have to um, trust in our controls and systems and, and be trustworthy to uh, folks that uh, decide to, uh, to bank with us, to do business with us, uh, and keep not only their money, but their data safe and secure. And it's not just about cybersecurity aspects of it. I mean, we take cybersecurity very, very, very seriously um, and take many measures to ensure that uh, data and systems are protected. Uh, but the other side of it is how do we use the data that's been um, entrusted to us? And how do we make sure that we have appropriate um, consents and we can explain how we use the data to um, generate an insight and, and get to a certain outcome for a customer? Um, and how do we make that uh, super transparent and clear so anybody can understand what has happened. So, so you don't need to have a law degree to uh, read all the disclaimers and disclosures. And if we want to benefit from technology like artificial intelligence, then we must um, have data that is not only well managed internally, but is also of known quality. So uh, very often uh, I, I get data scientists who are super excited about the actual model and they give less thought about the data that's gone in to train this model and uh, where's this data from, how good is it, um, do we know, do we not, or are we just kind of hoping that, that it's all right. And big part of what we do is, um, you know, making sure that it is fresh, clean, uh, traceable to source and is um, safe to then use in inside generation. What it means uh, also to us as a bank is complying to many um, regulatory requirements. So, so banking is one of the most heavily regulated industries in the world. Uh, we do business across more than, than 60 um, markets and territories. So we do have a lot of um, different parts of, of the regulatory landscape to comply with. Uh, and we're quite proactive in um, our dialogue with regulators to, to not only showcase um, our thinking in this space, but to, uh, to continuously uh, sort of understand where the regulations are going and how we can uh, be proactively compliant before we, we get told to be compliant. And trust also means that the data is used in an ethical way. Um, at HSBC, we take the business of data ethics quite seriously as well. Um, 
we were the first bank to publicly share our ethical principles. Um, and we really wanted to to partner with the likes of um, Alan Turing Institute to um, advance the conversation about data ethics across the entire industry, not just HSBC itself, but across financial services um, and across uh, different uh, fintechs and, and financial service providers that are newer on the market um, and perhaps haven't considered all, all of those implications yet and haven't really encountered the breadth of regulation that, that we've had. And then the second ingredient of it, right? So, so all the controls, all the infrastructure has to be um, sound, all your policy has to be super sound. But the literacy um, around data topics has to be quite high in order to um, make sure that things stay secure, stay protected, and, and folks are um, not just complying to the letter of the regulation, but understand the spirit and understand our ethos uh, around um, what we're doing with data and why we're doing it. So the second pillar of our uh, overall data strategy is connecting our people. Um, it's all about culture. It's all about building the data-led culture, um, making sure that board to branch, everybody understands how to uh, play their position and what their accountabilities are in relation to our data landscape. Uh, and it's uplifting data literacy, not only for data professionals, but everybody else in the bank, including our customers, and making sure that we have that uh, very proactive um, dialogue with them. Uh, we have over 250,000 colleagues across the globe. Uh, and my challenge, and, and you know, it's the fun part, is that I have to make sure that they understand not just the the fun parts of data, not just the analytics and data science uh, side of the house, but they understand the basics. Um, you know, if you put incorrect um, name or occupation for Kate or her income level uh, into kind of the front of the process, then her outcome uh, across her landing process might be very different. So how do you uh, connect kind of the, the abstract data concepts to the actual uh, customer outcomes and how do you educate you know, this quantum of people and, and get them excited about it and shift the culture to um, ensure that we're data-led in our decision-making. That's kind of the big, big fun uh, challenge that we have. So I'm just wondering, uh, it, it, you mentioned the terms of data literacy and I guess, um, I mean, this is something that I guess if if the public in general were, had in general would help them in many aspects of life, not just interacting with any particular organisation. But um, what what are the kind of things that that help uh, to improve that data literacy to m make it you know the decision making process more transparent to them? Well, what what helps me I guess is is break um, down very technical sounding concepts into something that's a lot more familiar and use uh, sort of a worked example so so most uh, folks can um, relate to an example of opening a credit card or applying for for a mortgage or a loan um, and you can sort of think through scenarios of, of um, what data gets shared with whom for what purpose and then um, do you understand as a customer what um, what the bank just said back in their um, disclosures and consents? And, and if you didn't, then um, challenge them to be clear about what are you going to um, to do with my data? How is it going to be used? 
how was the decision made, um, and so on and so forth. So it's kind of um, taking accountability, I guess, for understanding as a, as a digital persona, um, what data about us um, do we have, you know, who do we share it with, and what is that entity that we share the data with is going to do with it, and, and am I comfortable um, with those usages or not? And what's the kind of the fair exchange of value here? Um, if, if I've given up my email address, what am I going to get back? And is it really the thing that I want to get back or is it something that I didn't order and didn't ask for? Um, the, the, the privacy topics are fascinating because uh, there's a lot of philosophical difference around the world on the topic of privacy and, and what sort of uh, uh, what's primary and what's secondary in that conversation. Uh, there's a lot of emerging regulation that's quite interesting as well. Uh, so I think we can spend a whole other podcast yeah. and, uh, on just that. <laughs> no, of course, it, it's always um, a combination of like policy and technology when it comes to things like privacy and security. Um, and of course, behind policy, there's there's philosophy, which of course is going to be different in different parts of the world. Um, but I wonder, Adrian, if you could speak a bit to sort of the the emerging technologies around privacy and security, and like, um, and how these factor into um, the kind of things Kate's been talking about. Yeah, Kate's Kate's brought up so many important issues. Um, I've taken a few notes. I hope it's okay. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna maybe speak for a while, coming going through some of the Go things ahead. you touched yeah, yeah, on. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll try to weave. Um, themes of privacy technologies into it. Um, so I'll start maybe by kind of rewinding a little bit to, to when Kate was, was, was talking about the fascinating opportunities for HSBC to use their data in order for them internally to um, be able to come to exciting conclusions, for example, about um, resilience of trade networks. Um, we're able to do that, as Kate was saying, much better than before because there's more data than before and there's much more computational power than before and methods have improved somewhat. So all of that makes that easier. But even though HSBC is a, you know, is a, is a huge global bank, uh, which enables them to do a good job of that, you could do even better if there were ways to combine their data with the data of other organizations. And that raises interesting questions about, well, are there ways that that can be done in a um, a safe and ethical, trustworthy manner um, to enable everyone to benefit without um, without raising concerns, appropriate concerns that people would have around privacy. And um, that lets us maybe start to have a conversation about methods like uh, federated learning, secure multi-party computation, um, which are applicable here, but would be also applicable in many other settings. So maybe we'll start by, by having a bit of a conversation about this, because I think it's a really interesting area where where Turing is, is um, collaborating with HSBC to see how we can be helpful. Um, so this, this area of um, how can we try to help organizations that have their own data combine that with other organizations' data in, in, a, in, in a safe, ethical way in order for everyone to be better off is a really important theme that, that appears in many different sectors. So clearly in finance, as we've touched on, but also many other areas, for example, in healthcare, uh, it would be wonderful if different hospitals who have their own data sets on their own patients were able in a, again, appropriately private way to share um, to share data about their patients with other hospitals. And, and together you could learn a model 
that uh, could benefit from the data across all those different patients who might be coming from quite different uh, demographic backgrounds. Uh, and if you only had data from one set of them, you might develop um, a, a solution which which wouldn't work very well for others. And you know, the more data, roughly speaking, typically the more data you have, the better you can do. Uh, particularly for minority groups, uh, which which by definition are the ones where you have the least data. So so typically it will help them most if you can if you can do this sort of thing. Um, and what one very exciting technical development over the last um, 10 to 15 years has been the the, uh, the initial demonstration that it's possible to uh, to to uh, to do computation in a way which is um, guaranteed to be secure in a way that I'll, I'll define a bit more carefully in a moment. Um, but to do that requires a significant amount of, of additional computational capacity. Over time, as our computational abilities have increased and as we've improved methods, it's becoming increasingly practical to consider doing these kinds of things at scale, which is very exciting. So let me try to, to uh, I'll try to explain uh, as best I can um, two, two key themes in privacy enhancing technologies that we've seen really coming to the fore over the last 10 to 15 years. So one is what I was mentioning before, that, that, well, there's an area of homomorphic encryption which goes along with secure multi-party computation, uh, which often combined with federated learning. These, these are sort of phrases which may sound a little bit uh, daunting, so there's some long words. Roughly speaking, they are ways to enable people to learn as if they were combining their data sets without actually combining their data sets. So um, a, a technical phrase which is sometimes used is uh, different parties will never see the other party's data in the clear. Um, so you can learn something. So if I have some data and Kate has some data, um, I could just train my model, Kate could just train her model, but neither of our models would be as good as if we could train on all the data together. What these new techniques allow us to do is, is, is in a sense to get the best of both worlds. It allows us to train a model as if we were sharing all of our data, but still I'll never see Kate's data and she'll never see my data. So that's really exciting. It's not a magic bullet, does require more computation, often requires a little bit of approximation to, to enable things to work, but increasingly we're able to use those kinds of technologies to do bigger and bigger things in the real world. So that's very exciting, but I wanna point out uh, an important potential drawback that isn't always clear so the fact that we can learn a model where I've never seen Kate's data and she's never seen my data, it doesn't mean necessarily that I haven't been able to learn anything about Kate's data. That's quite an important thing to, 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 to recognize. That is, uh, a common way we might do this would be that both of us at the end of the day would have the model. So we'd have all the parameters for the model learned from all of our data. And Often the sorts of models which you might develop might be, for example, a big neural network, which has many, many, many parameters, potentially millions of parameters. And it's often possible to learn something. If you've, if you've got the parameters of the model, you may be able to learn things about the data that it was trained on. So the fact that I've never directly seen Kate's model uh, doesn't necessarily mean I can't learn anything about her data if I can inspect the model's parameters. And um, so while there are really exciting technical developments in improving these methods of secure multi-party computation, there are, there's also interesting developments of people trying to uh, explore to what extent they can recover information from those learned models, and then also put, you know, trying to figure out ways to defend against that and improve methods to, to enable that. So that's one big theme. 
I wonder, do you want to explore that a bit a bit now or should I go on to the second big theme that's also really important? Sure, I know. I, I think that's really interesting. I think it's um, not necessarily intuitive to people who don't work on AI themselves to think that, um, as you said, it, even if the, someone is not having access to this secure, sensitive data that people might want to only be accessed for very specific reasons, if they are, even if they have access to some kind of machine learning model that's been, you know, trained using that data or that's been used that data for some kind of analysis, um, it may be unfortunately a, 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 a flaw in in some of our machine learning techniques. In that, that just having access to the model itself, you could potentially find out information about the data that was used uh, to train it originally. Um, so I, I don't know, Adrian. Are there, are there are people starting to think about how to, you know, best work on machine learning in ways that that avoids this for you know situations where you're doing analysis on sensitive data? Yeah, um, maybe I can try to give a, a simple uh, example to, to to make it a bit more concrete. Um, suppose the three of us, you, Ed, Kate, and and I, Adrian, are um, for, for whatever reason, we would we're playing some game where we want to figure out um, what's the what's the um, age of the oldest person amongst us. I know it's actually pretty obvious who the oldest is, uh, probably. But um, but but to be, well, people, the, for, for, for the listeners' benefit, maybe not so exactly much on Zoom. Uh, you, you're you're suggesting yourself. Yeah, for the listeners' benefit, it's very like very likely me. But um, suppose we didn't know that, and suppose you know, suppose there are lots of us in a room. And we'd like Kate, to Kate is disguised with a lot of makeup, so let's just uh, <laughs> take hard. Maybe, um, it, it is not as easy as, um, as, as we're making it sound. <laughs> Maybe you're not the only one wearing makeup. <laughs> I don't know. So, so um, here we are trying to guess each other's age, which, by the way, I must um, m- must remind everybody is a protected characteristic. So it, exactly. is, uh, it mm-hmm. is the pinnacle of exactly. PII, you know, personally identifiable information. Right, so so well, no, no, so, so in a serious way, that this makes it, mm. this maybe a good example. Um, uh, we could use uh, homomorphic encryption or a secure multi-party computation approach, which would mean that while we did the computation, I would never get to see Ed your or Kate your age, and you would never get to see my age. But at the end of the day, the output from this algorithm will be the age of the oldest person, and because probably. It's, it probably seems likely to both of you and me that I'm probably the eldest one here. When it outputs the age of the eldest person, you will have with high probability a lot of information about my particular age, and that is potentially a problem. Um, so a different theme of work um, that start, was started by Cynthia Dwork and others also 10 to 15 years ago um, is, is, is called differential privacy. And the idea which is which is uh, very nicely crafted because it enables us to achieve things which we want to achieve while protecting things we want to protect, is to, the idea is, well, can we, enable, can we enable people to learn statistical properties of a set of people with high accuracy without being able to tell anything about any individual or to a large extent without being able to, to tell anything about any individual. So an example for this might be, what if we want to figure out the average age of the three of us? Um, now here, the way this sort of approach typically works is that 
Um, each of us is going to provide our own age, but not exactly our own age. We're going to kind of generate a random number. Maybe it's going to be a uniform random number between uh, minus 100 and 100. And you're going to add it to your age, and then you're going to kind of put it into, into a box. Each of us is going to do that. And then the algorithm only has access to the numbers in the box. And when it takes the average of those numbers, because each of the random numbers we added had zero mean, the average, the expected average of the number in the box will be the average of all our ages, but it'll have a lot of noise around it. Uh, and in the example I gave where we added a, a, you know, a, 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 a random variable between minus 100 and 100, that's a lot of noise. So you can see that it's very unlikely you can learn anything about one of our individual ages. But if instead of uh, minus 100 to plus 100, we'd, we'd added only a number between minus 1 and plus 1, you'd be able to tell a lot more. Um, and you can see how as the number of people increases, so if instead of the three of us, if there were 100,000 of us, um, even if you added a lot of noise, like minus 100 to plus 100, on everyone's individual age, um, you know, elementary statistics will tell you that, that with high probability, the average that you get from the box with high probability will be very close to the true mean. And so that's very nice. You, you, can, you can provably demonstrate that with high probability, you will get an accurate assessment of the, of the statistical thing you really want to estimate, which often is what you want to know. And yet also with high probability, you'll not be able to tell anything about an individual. So that's very exciting. And these two themes of secure multi-party computation, which, which goes along with homomorphic encryption, those methods give a guaranteed cryptographic proof that you can't access data in the clear those, but, but it doesn't imply that you can't infer anything about individual necessarily. You can combine that theme with this other theme of differential privacy, which does give you a statistical guarantee of not telling something about individual. You can do both of those together and, and often get nice results. Does that make sense? I think so, yeah, yeah. No, you, you explained, uh, certainly explained the differential privacy very well. I think I understand it better than, than I previously did. I don't. I didn't really understand it before, and it has it has come up in conversation with colleagues. So <laughs> that was very handy. Ed, and, and just it's worth saying that um, indeed this explanation has probably been the clearest and and um, the most accessible that I've heard. Um, but you know, there's so much um, advancement in these areas that I've seen uh, synthetic data sets that get generated using um, these techniques uh, that. Um, Adrian just described, it, and it looks like magic even to a very seasoned technologist. And, and, you know, folks cannot believe that a synthetic data set can retain all the characteristics that are significant for the analytical work um, of the original data set without being able to see what was actually in there because enough noise has been introduced. And, and it's fascinating, right? And that's where back to our literacy topic, what I would urge uh, the listeners out there to do is, is get really curious, right? This is this is amazing, amazing science that happens um, right um, in front of our very eyes. And contrary to popular belief, financial services is kind of in the thick of it, right? We are um, on that cutting edge, along with healthcare, along with other industries, and and uh, figuring these problems out both from kind of technical and scientific standpoint but also against the backdrop of real customer impact, real regulators uh, demanding um, a certain level of compliance f from, from us. 
in real financial crime that we we battle and real fraud that happens that we're trying to prevent. It's fascinating. So so little plug for um, come and, and do data and analytics and financial services because um, <laughs> we are really, really fun. And, and the stuff that's happening is just um, unprecedented in my career, right? It's, it's definitely uh, not boring at all. No, it is a really interesting topic. And um, it, I mean, it speaks to a lot of what we work at, at the Alan Turing Institute as well. There's there's so many um, areas of both yeah, scientific research, but also, as you're describing, you know, business al- uh, analysis, where you, you, you may have access to these, you know, highly sensitive data sets, which include, as you described previously, like personally identifiable information, which you don't want any anyone but perhaps a very small handful of people to have um, access to because you don't this is not public information you don't want um, any this information to be you know available so that people can find out information about people but um, you do want to have the advantage of the collecting this data in terms of the insights you can get from analyzing it and using technologies like this like generating synthetic data sets that retain the statistical properties of the original data and you can then do your analysis on that um you know these yeah like i said it's these are things which are being used as adrian mentioned in healthcare and in other areas of science just as well as uh, financial services um i'll i i just want to before i go back to you adrian uh, talk a little bit about so so one of the other technologies we that we work on at, at Turing is um something called a trusted research environment and um, so this is another technology that can help with this exact use case where you want to do analysis or science on sensitive data. Um, for the, the, this is uh, what we do here is like we have um, basically a computing environment that different people can log into, but is um, it, it contains the sensitive data, or, or indeed it may contain pseudonymized data of some kind, but it's it's um, it, it, it's restricted in who can access it. So th- this is another technology that can be useful for analysing this kind of data because it means that um, so long as you have those restrictions in place, um, you know exactly who is able to access um, exactly what level of sensitive data. Um, anyway, that, I, I just thought I'd plug that as well. But um, I'll go back to you, Adrian. You had something to, to say about what, what Kate was just talking about. Well, thanks, Ed, and th- thanks for, for mentioning um, a really important topic. These sort of trusted research environments are, are really key in a lot of areas. Uh, and it's something which, which we at Turing have developed and, and are open sourcing a, a kind of uh, environment for. And we're very happy to, to work with, with partners on that. Um, I just wanted to um, come back on, on some one of the things Kate said. Um, so first, I 100% of course agree that it's really exciting that we're developing new technical tools and methods which can really um, help all of us. And that, that that is wonderful. But we also have to be, I think, a little bit careful not to oversell these techniques and, and, and make sure people are aware of the limitations. I actually consider that to be an important part of, of, of literacy that, that, uh, that people who are using these systems have to be aware of their limitations as well as their strengths. And so I just wanted to, to mention one thing about um, synthetic data. We, we could talk for a long time about synthetic data. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wonderful area and there are lots of great uses for synthetic data. And just, just to be a little bit clear for listeners, what we mean here is um, you've got some data set um, and uh, it might be it might be full of interesting properties, it might be on uh, millions of, of uh, retail bank clients, for example. Um, so a, a very nice idea is that maybe you can 
learn statistical properties of that data set, and then generate new data synthetically, that's why it's called synthetic data, in order to try to mimic the statistical properties of the original data set with the hope being, with the intention, with the motivation being that you can then use that data set just like you use the original data set, but that you don't have to worry about the personal data because you would hope that it's kind of cleansed of that. But a really important thing to highlight is that, unfortunately, it's not quite that simple. Um, so in some ways, a not in exactly the same way, but just, just I want to just uh, at a high level clarify, just as in secure multi-party computation, information can leak about the data. Similarly, with the synthetic data process, information also can leak. And maybe one nice way to see this would be, imagine you had a population of a million people where, uh, and we were looking at the heights of those people. And let's suppose in this data set that uh, everybody except one um, had a height of uh, five foot six, um, but one person was uh, seven foot six. Um, if you wanted to have a data set that copied those statistical properties, there's no real way to do that without, no, no way to do that um, with good accuracy unless you're going to have, you know, similarly low probability of this very unusual event. And so you, you will inevitably leak some information about that individual. So it's just one limitation to be aware of. And actually, for people who are interested in, in, in diving into this a bit more, we, we put out a report with the Royal Society. Um, James Jordan was the, the lead author called Synthetic Data, What, Why and How. Um, which you can find on the web if, if you're interested to, to, to dive into that a bit, for, a bit further. Um, but while, while we're still talking about uh, data and individuals' data, I wonder if I can bring up a, a really interesting topic, and I'd love to hear Kate's views on this. Um, I'm happy to, to share our thoughts. So what, one of, well, Kate has already brought up this idea of, of um, sensitive attributes and, and personally uh, identifiable information, um, things like age. Um, so of course, um, most most big companies, including HSBC, are very keen to treat people fairly. We've, that topic's already come up before. Um, and one important aspect of that is knowing that you are uh, treating different demographic subgroups in a fair way, um, where often those groups are indicated by these sensitive attributes. Um, a fundamental challenge is that in, just in order to be able to check that as a starting point, you need to have that demographic data. So you need to collect it from, from individuals. And I know that that's a challenge in certain jurisdictions. I know in the UK, some people think you're not allowed to legally, but in fact, you are allowed to collect legally in the UK. But even where you are allowed legally to collect it, of course, um, it raises reasonable concerns. Will people be comfortable sharing their data? Uh, maybe some people will, some people won't. That can lead you to having selection bias and, and that can cause trouble. Um, so should you maybe think about using proxies for those uh, for those variables? That is, you can try to predict those variables, um, but that has a whole load of, of, of issues too. I'd love to hear how Kate's thinking about that. Well, well, you definitely uh, opened the whole minefield of, of ethical questions, and, and we are indeed grappling with it, just like any other financial services um, institutions. I'll, I'll give you kind of a couple of examples to, to, to set the scene, I suppose. So one um, example that, that often comes up in, in retail banking is um, around duty of care towards vulnerable customers. And, and um, as you said, in order to identify somebody as vulnerable, you have to um, collect a, a fair bit of um, highly sensitive data and then correlate it with behavior patterns and, and things like that. So 
um, that's one of the open questions and is is how far does the consent stretch and, and what is the role of the bank? Um, and then kind of around that topic, uh, one can also get some extra data sets. Um, so, so, for example, social media usage. And that could identify a pattern of behavior that suggests um, a gambling problem, for example. And, and um, it, it is a big ethical dilemma is to, first of all, should the bank um, even correlate those data sets? And, and, um, or is it too intrusive? And, and um, even though it's um, impacting someone's financial well-being, um, it is frankly none of the bank's business to, to point that out, or should we, shouldn't we? Um, what's the regulation? What's the public perception on, on those topics? So, so it's it's very complex. Um, and then uh, kind of turning our eye to, to internal, to, uh, to employees, into inclusive working environment, um, there's been a lot of hot debates around um, ethnicity data, right? So, so it's, it's a very, very hot topic. Um, the way we collect ethnicity data in different jurisdictions, uh, Adrian's absolutely correct. There are certain um, countries where it is not permissible to collect that data or to ask a person or to even give them an option. It is just completely off the menu. Um, whilst other countries, it's lawful to collect. Uh, but a question then comes up as to uh, sort of what selections um, are provided to an individual and are they able to find uh, their um, ethnic identity in those selections or even the selection criteria is somewhat biased. So uh, I've heard a lot of discussion on that topic to say, well, um, it's nice that we're collecting this information, trying to uh, promote and, and be fair and more inclusive across uh, different ethnic backgrounds. However, the boxes you're giving me to tick are, are actually quite biased and steeped in, in uh uh, certain historic um, inequities that that you know they need to be changed, and then um, you are absolutely right, Adrian. If if you collect in some places, don't collect in other places, um, and try to design perhaps perhaps development programs that that are um, uh, sort of focused on specific demographic or on specific uh, ethnic background, are we then disadvantaging somebody else? So. Uh, as I said, it's it's a, it's a minefield without very clear-cut answers. Um, and the best we can do uh, in the bank is is we are um, facing into those questions quite openly. Um, like I said, we have an ethics committee um, that considers various use cases, specifically when um, AI is involved and when we're looking at different data sets. And, and we debate and discuss and have representation from um, our legal department to get the, uh, the, the, the the what's lawful and what's not lawful view, the, the risk folks, um, voice of the customer. We have some external advisors uh, to understand what would be the perspective. And, and, and frankly, we also have to ask ourselves, is that something as individuals, if I heard of this, um, how would it make me feel? Because where it comes to usage of these data attributes and and um, AI on top of it. I don't think humanity has uh, a, an absolute set moral compass on that, that's clear uh, to everyone on all aspects of, of this very complicated space. So we're kind of trying to figure it out and, and apply multiple perspectives to um, get to the answer that, that at least we can say this is how we reasoned to this answer. Um, it might not be perfect, but 
this was our thinking pattern um, and then see how it lands. But it's super complicated and very, very interesting because it's so complicated because there are no um, clear-cut uh, views here. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It, uh, and I think you mentioned earlier on that, um, uh, if I'm getting it right, the HSBC is like the first big bank to publish its uh, sort of ethical guidelines. Is yes. that what you said? Yes, we were. Um, I know lots of folks have followed suit since and been very vocal about it. We, we uh-huh. had okay. the ethical <laughs> guidelines um, a few years back and, and um, we've been um, very focused on not just leaving it as some sort of policy that, that sits um, out at the top of the firm and, and we're only communicating outwards, but really embedding um, those guidelines into our business as usual operations, you know, starting to uh, apply that lens um, and test our AI use cases, our machine learning use cases against the ethical principles to say, is it stacking up or not? Um, And in the process, we we, uh, didn't really revise the principles. They're, They're quite solid to begin with, but we might have tweaked a bit of interpretation. But all use cases go through that um, sort of rigor of saying, is this not only can I do this, but should I do this? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think a lot of this comes down to transparency, right? So it's it's almost like um, if, if if the if the the principles and the guidelines are out there, you know, even if like as you mentioned, not everyone in the world is going to agree perfectly with the HSBC uh, ethical principles, of course. But but they'll know what they are, and at least they can they can refer to them and understand what you know how hsbc are gonna are gonna interact with them in any particular interaction they have can i can i, can I just jump in on that i think on. um we, we well we should definitely applaud hsbc for putting out their principles that's terrific um we're actually probably many many listeners will know that we're, we're at a stage where there are hundreds of, of sets of ethical principles that different organizations have put out um the good news is that a lot of them uh are quite similar, um, and so that it's good that there's broad agreement. But I, I'd suggest that the broad agreement is really around very high-level concepts, which which um, which are hard to argue uh, are bad. They're, they're, you know, the most common things which are featured across them is transparency and fairness. Or, you know, sim- similar phrases like that. But th- those words, those those are great things. They're things which uh, you know m- people want to have. But um, they're kind of slippery words that can be quite ambiguous. Um, it's why we often hear, I think, politicians say that we want to have a fair society. If, of course, we want a fair society. Who doesn't want a fair society? But what exactly does that mean? So just like Kate was saying, I, I really liked how she was talking about it. There is no perfect answer. Um, you know, it's like saying, well, all we need to do, all we need to do is, is have a fair tax code and then everything will be okay. Of course, you know, what one person thinks is fair will be different to someone else. And that's reasonable. Different people have different reasonable views. Um, what's important is to have a good process to try to listen carefully to, to diverse voices and understand people's hopes and fears and concerns and then figure out the right way of society to, to decide on how to do things. One thing I would note there is that absolutely why we should applaud HSBC, individual companies, of course, don't have quite the same incentives as society broadly. And so it's important, I think, for all of us to try to get involved in this discussion. Um, just like Kate was saying, it's re- there are a lot of complex topics um, and we need diverse expertise to, to get involved. People from technical uh, side, social sciences, ethics, 
uh, economics, law, lot, lots of different topics, and of course, uh, just the, a huge diverse range of affected stakeholders. So what, one thing I'd like to do is, is just shout out to everyone who's listening to, to get involved if, if you're interested. Um, also, just like to mention that on, on this topic of uh, gathering demographic data and um, whether or not it's okay to do that, whether or not it's okay to try to predict demographic data um, from, from other variables, um, in the UK, the CDI, the, the Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation, is, is doing a specific project on that. So if you're interested in that, you could reach out to them or uh, I'm on the advisory board, so you could reach out to me if you're interested. Um, and I, I wonder if I could just bring up a related topic that's very close to this that also maybe helps to illustrate some of the challenges involved. Um, so this is, this is a, a problem that sometimes I think goes under the name thin data. I heard it called thin data by, by my friend Mike Ross. I thought it was a good description. So... Um, uh, imagine a, a real-world setting where a bank uh, is, is trying to decide whether or not to make a loan to an individual. Um, to, a, to a first approximation, a, 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 key, a key issue is trying to predict whether or not the person is likely to repay the loan. Uh, and of course, you can use lots of data to, to, to try to do that. Um, and roughly speaking, a bank will make that loan if they have sufficient confidence that the person is sufficiently likely to repay that loan. Thing to keep in mind is, is in order to have sufficient confidence, will depend that the sorts of information you need on an individual to get sufficient confidence will depend on that type of person. So maybe if I'm a white male living in a certain area with a sufficiently high income, maybe that's enough for the bank to feel okay. That's fine. Statistically, that's 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 plenty to have a statistically high probability of being able to repay the loan. But maybe if I'm from a uh, a minority group uh, where Again, by definition, there isn't a lot of data on me. There's only, there's only thin data about me. Just because of the way statistics work, you can't get as much confidence about that individual because there aren't many people like that individual. And therefore, to get the same confidence, you need to gather more information about that individual. You might need to ask more questions. You might want to, I'm not saying this is the right thing, but just Kate brought it up. You might want to look at their social media or you might want to just ask them more information about, about, about their lives. And that's... That's just a statistical thing. It's not with any ill intent. It's just trying to get to the same level of confidence in making the decision. But of course, that raises questions for society about whether that's okay. Um, minority groups often feel like they are uh, subject to surveillance to a greater extent than other groups. And that is, of course, a concern. Um, but I'm just highlighting that that can naturally arise just through trying to get the same level of confidence. So that illustrates that the complexity of the issues here. And I think it's important that we just... Um, you discuss them broadly across society, particularly with the groups who are affected. And, and I think, Adrian, that's key, right? It, it is having that open dialogue, understanding what is the concern um, around sharing that data. And the concerns will be very, very different um, depending on what the, the individual's previous experience has been or that group's experience um, with, with banks or with the government or with um, whoever is trying to collect that data, you know, I had a, you, you've described probability of default beautifully. It's one of the key metrics in banking, right? That's what you're trying to figure out is how much provision um, does the bank have to have um, to, to cover all the loans that will default? And, you know, what's the probability of them defaulting and, and how do we uh, make sure that, that, that we hedge? Because if we were only lending to um, folks that have zero probability of default, that the whole banking system wouldn't wouldn't exist. You have to take a certain degree of risk. Um, but that risk has to be well managed and calculated because um, we have duty to uh, 
the, the rest of the economic system and, and um, our customers as well. I'm going to start to wrap up, but I just uh, before I let, let you both go, um, uh, um, I'll go to Adrian first. Is there anything else you want to mention? Before and um, is there any is there anywhere you want to point people, uh, listeners, to where they can find out more about the topics we've discussed today? Thanks very much. I actually really like the way I dig out this on this point of, of agreement that we need more engagement and dialogue, and I think everyone should try to get involved, particularly um, if you'd like to well if you want to get involved in, in, in any way with your expertise or just to, to help voice your perspective uh, it's really important to do that um, you can find out more information about what we're doing at Turing it just you can just google my name um, you can find my site at Turing or Cambridge um, you can see what we're doing in safe and ethical AI at Turing you can see what we're doing with HSBC in the Turing fair programs if you google uh, Turing HSBC fair you'll see what we're doing there and uh, it would be great to engage with with people who are interested and same question to Kate. Uh, where can people find out more about this? Well, first of all, I just wanted to to, to thank you, Ed and uh, Adrian. It's been a great discussion. Um, we've covered nearly all my favorite topics. I think the <laughs> only one that, that we need to get Ed to invite us back for is probably cross-border um, data sharing. So, so it's very near and dear to my heart But in how these techniques are, are um, helping us um, be compliant and, and yet... Um, have that global view of what's happening uh, across the data landscape. So just a couple of thoughts um, to leave everyone with. We are um, a business and, and data is at the heart of that business. Um, and it, it's really exciting to be on the forefront of a lot of these developments, to be working with the Alan Turing Institute um, and really shape the future. And, and one of the, the key shout outs um, is that sustainability topics, right? It's, it's super interesting. Please look up um, our sustainability commitments. Um, have a look at what Noel Quinn has to say, um, what other executives in HSBC have, have pledged and committed to our involvement with COP27. Um, and and uh, I think the, the main sites to, to find us is, is um, you know, I'm on LinkedIn. I, I tend to blog, not, not too much, but kind of enough um, but yeah get get in touch get involved uh, it's a fascinating area so so and everybody's welcome brilliant thanks very much and thanks again to adrian and kate for coming on the podcast thanks for listening to this week's episode the show is hosted by me b costa gomez ed calstry joe dungate christina last and anika york music for this podcast is produced by jam and sun you can listen and follow via the link in the description or by searching Jam and Sun on Instagram.